Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, the show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back, everyone, to the 203rd episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Are you sick of the constant arguing, not only with your teen, but also with the father or your husband? Would you like to put an end to arguing or at least dial it down? Well, I brought in amazing guests to talk about it. But before we get started, I wanted to let you know that if you need some mom coaching, I have room for a couple of more clients. If you're not sure how to handle a situation with your teen, or if you're worried about them, or if you want to discover ways to avoid the drama, email me at Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N, that's two L's, two E's, at dialdownthedrama.com. So it's Colleen at dialdownthedrama.com. It can be a one-time consult or ongoing sessions. Also, I want you to get out your calendars and let you know that my tried and true and proven seven-week program, Power Your Parenting, is going to launch February 27th. This program has changed so many moms' lives and helped them dial down the drama, stop the constant arguing, and most importantly, reconnect with their teen so that you can actually like them again. You get daily support and we meet once a week where you will get individualized coaching from me. And I designed this program for busy moms, so it doesn't take a lot of time, but you get some really great input. So it's for a small group of moms because each of you are gonna get individual attention on our once a week coaching sessions. I haven't launched this program since fall of 21 because I was working so hard to finish my new book, Dial Up the Dream. So if you are a mom of a tween or teen and you'd like a little more peace in your home, and if you'd like to reclaim your life, email me at colleen at dialdownthedrama.com and tell me you are interested and I will send you more information. Our guests today are Linda and Charlie Bloom. Married since 1972, Linda and Charlie Bloom have been working with groups, individuals, couples, and organizations to enhance the quality of their relationships and communication skills since 1975. 
They both have master's degrees in clinical social work and have lectured, led seminars, and provided consultation at universities and learning institutes throughout the United States as well as internationally. They have written and published four books, Happily Ever After and 39 Other Myths About Love, Breaking Through the Relationship of Your Dreams, 101 Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married, Simple Lessons to Make Love Last, Secrets of Great Marriages, Real Stories from Real Couples About Lasting Love, and That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Becomes Stronger in the Broken Places. Their organization, Bloom Work, is dedicated to promoting healthy, fulfilling, and successful relationships for individuals, couples, and organizations. They have just released their new book called End to Arguing, 101 Valuable Lessons for All Relationships. So welcome, Linda and Charlie Bloom. Thank you. Good to be here. Delighted that you invited us. Yes, I really appreciate your time. So the first question that I ask my guests is if you are a parent, and if so, tell us the ages of your kids and grandkids. Uh Well, we have a son and a daughter. My son's almost 50, and my daughter is in her early 40s. So we're we're very experienced, and we're blessed to have three grandsons, and we have two who are already teenagers of 15 and 13, and the 12-year-old's going to be a teenager this summer. So we're very happy. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to be around and hopefully influence their passage through the teenage years, because I know for some parents it's a harrowing ride, and we would like to lend some support to that time. So can y'all tell my listeners a little bit about your background and then why you wrote your newest book, An End to Arguing? Well, it had been in process of being written for about the last 50 years. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, got, we got married in 1972, and it hasn't been all pure bliss um, <laughs> since then. Although I have to admit that we have put the challenging times when we were unskillfully dealing with differences behind us. And yeah, I mean, the the last two or three decades have really been radically different than the first half. So that's, you know, the good news is, is that you can go through some, and we have gone through some challenging times as anybody who's been in relationships, committed partnership knows. And even at those times when it seems like this just can't work, and we we hit a few of those. If you hang in there, you can find your way through it often. Not always. There's no guarantee. We're not necessarily in the business of making sure that couples stay together no matter what. We don't necessarily believe that's always the case. But more often than not, what we've seen is couples who make that decision to split before they've really given it their best shot. And we kind of see ourselves as the go-to people when it comes to, because we seem to attract a lot of couples who are at that desperate stage of, you know, we've tried everything. This We're going to give this one more shot because we, you know, we've learned a lot over the years from these couples who do manage to, to hang in there long enough and learn enough to get through it successfully and from our own challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that I answered your your question. <laughs> I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> but And y'all are psychotherapists, right? Yeah. Yes, we're both trained as psychotherapists and we specialize in couples counseling. Yes, yes. Yeah, we teach seminars and we just taught one last weekend and we're going to teach one this weekend, The Secrets of Great Relationships. Yes, and we all want that. We've learned so much over the years about what the secrets of great relationships are. And we're both from the school of thought that giving your children the gift of a model of a really working, loving, fulfilling, respectful 
Partnership is one of the greatest gifts that you give your kids. And so we emphasize that in our class because we often have couples who are in distress and we say, you don't have to hide, you know, the arguing that you do from the children. Of course, there are always some couples who (laughs) indulge in, you know, letting the kids see too much arguing and they do need to go behind closed doors to work some of it out. But a lot of parents are so afraid to let their children see them having a passionate interchange. And we encourage them as long as you stay with it so that there's some kind of resolution and that you manage the intensity of feelings and they see you kiss and make up. That's a gift to your kids to see. You can have different opinions. You can make a space to respect those differences. And that's a wonderful gift. And those parents who are always behind the closed doors think they're fooling the kids. We say, "Uh, uh, 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 uh." the kids are picking up the tension. They're so sensitive and open. They're like little tuning forks. They know when the parents are really into each other and enjoying each other and, you know, happy. And when there's this cold, silent, you know, tolerance going on. And so we encourage people to be more open and reveal their inner process and to keep refining the way in which they deal with their intense emotions so they can speak their truth about what they feel and need without the blame and judgment and all the manipulation and the unskillful means. Yes. So I invited y'all to this show because you may not know this. I'm joking. Moms and teens, fathers and teens, parents and teens tend to argue a lot. And then parents or co-parents or all the versions of parents who are trying to parent together can often argue about parenting. And so I think your new book has so many great little chapters that I think could be really, really helpful for both parents and then helping parents with their teens. One of your first chapters is, is it really possible to avoid arguments? (laughs) Yeah, that was the question that came up most frequently for us when after we had decided on title for the book, I think you asked me a little bit earlier about how we kind of came to write the book. And because so much of our work has had to do with working with individuals and couples about conflict management, we had accumulated an enormous amount of material just from our work and workshops that we had presented and you know other other books that we had <clears throat> written and why don't we put together like a manual for dealing with this because there are so many different aspects of conflict what can provoke it how we can prevent it how we can repair it when it happens and we you know we saw that kind of like our our first book which was 101 things i wish i knew when i got married we had literally over a hundred key themes. And so the book, you know, it's said, geez, we've already got all this content. Let's just put it in the form of a book with some editing and, you know, adding some stuff. We came up with 101 chapters dealing with different aspects of managing and preventing and repairing differences. So, yeah, (laughs) so we would talk to some of our friends or colleagues, you know, our latest project is this book. And so many of them would respond by, is that even possible? (laughs) You know, and you, you know, you can, you can really end arguing. And so when we explain to them the distant, the distinction, which is really critical here between having differences and having arguments. Differences are inevitable. They're absolutely guaranteed to show up in relationships, largely because we're human, but also because we tend to draw people into our lives and be attracted to people who are in some ways different from us. If we were to bring people in who share the exact same perspectives and views and values and personalities and predispositions 
there wouldn't be the kind of juice and electricity and chemistry that we have when we're with somebody who provokes different aspects of ourselves. So yeah, it, it is possible. We're not talking about just having different points of view. I mean, that's going to come up. We're, we're not talking about that. That's not only is that going to come up, it's not a bad thing. What's a bad thing is getting into these just endless cycles of uh, getting reactive to each other and trying to coerce each other into behaviors and feelings and attitudes that we want them to have. When two people do that, that's an argument. And when that goes on for any amount of time, it becomes destructive. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. The first book I wrote was called Dial Down the Drama. Mm. Reducing Conflict and Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter. And it's a, a book for moms. Mm. So I'm I'm definitely in your corner about all of this. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I see a lot in my practice, and I'm sure y'all have too, you know, is venting. And so you have a chapter called To Vent or Not to Vent. We both, in the early years where we were together, when I was getting over being a conflict phobic person, the pendulum had to swing all the way in the other direction. And I thought I'm really getting somewhere because I'm not withholding, you know, I'm not sucking it up and keeping it in. And I did go through a period where I vented and Charlie was teaching me how to be more honest. And so we were both venting and it was so destructive, but I did come back towards middle. And I do believe that sometimes when people have been conflict phobic, like I was, and there are a lot of people like that who feel that conflict is dangerous, arguments are dangerous, somebody's going to get hurt, I'll be humiliated, I'll be embarrassed, you know, that they can get over that phobia, but they may not leave from being withdrawn and withheld without going through a phase that maybe they overstep a little bit until they come back towards medium. So I do believe that it is important to give ourselves permission to speak openly and honestly and reveal rather than conceal and express rather than repress, but to do it as soon as we can in a refined and graceful, respectful way. Because Mm -hmm. if you vent, you invite retaliation. Even if the thing you're saying is absolutely brilliantly true, Mm-hmm. The other person is likely to feel judged and criticized and to kick back to you. So I think that it's important not to err on the edge of repression mm-hmm. or to err on the other end of the spectrum about just letting it all fly, because both of those patterns are destructive. To stay in the mid zone. Mm-hmm. And it's a discipline for the people who are phobic and the overexpressors, you know, the stuffers <laughs> and the overexpressors. It's difficult for them to change habits that have been in the family for generations and mm-hmm. come towards middle. But mm-hmm. that's where real, authentic, meaningful relating goes on, where both people can be open hearted and pay attention to what's being delivered, both the verbal message and the nonverbal facial expression, body language and tone of voice. All of these really are an exchange in meaningful communication. And it's an art form. And so people need to know whether they're repress or overexpressors so that they can understand what their work is to come to the middle and they can end up being a validating couple. And that's the top of the charts. Yes. What I have seen often with parenting, but that a mom has stuffed for a long time and then she gets triggered. The teen comes in late drunk and she's been waiting up all night for the teen. And then she just vents. And the problem with that often is that it's all over the place. The venting is emotions and about her and fear. And it's just, it's like a machine gun of a million thoughts and feelings. And the teen has no idea what she's even saying. 
and can laugh at her and write it off. And I think that's what you're talking about is negative part of venting. That's right. Mm, yeah, I think it's important to be able to recognize that it's very different. We're not saying that you should never get mad or that you should never raise your voice or you have to be walking on eggshells and be careful not to ever disturb or upset the other person. When we talk about venting, we're talking about indulging in a projection of judgments and anger that are directed at the other person, that most of them start with you. You need to do this, or you know, you don't, you're not listening to me, or you, and they come across as accusations and judgments. And it's impossible for any of us to really be able to stay open and undefended in the face of that kind of what feels like an assault. Yes. To understand that we're not trying to muffle you or shut you down. We want you to be careful about the way you express your hurt, your anger, your disappointment, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. Speak of it from a personal perspective as opposed to, mm -hmm. well, you know, didn't come home until two o'clock in the morning. I was beside myself. I was so worried and scared. I don't think that you understand how it feels to me when we have these kinds of situations. Let me tell you how I felt. We want people to feel free to express their inner feelings, even, even if they're difficult, but to do it in a way that is not projecting negative accusations and judgments and criticisms on the other person. I felt this way. I'm feeling this right now, not you shouldn't or whatever. I can think that. I think that you shouldn't stay out until three in the morning. That's true. But what I want you to know is I want you to know how it affects me. And you know, Colleen, the scenario that you depicted with the mother who was stuffing, 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 and then exploded. Yeah. That is such a beautiful example of one of the things that's a primary teaching for us both with couples, not to hold things in and then explode, to not let the incompletions mount up mm -hmm. because you can't keep them under wraps indefinitely. And this woman had a lot of opportunities that she missed and she turned away from when the daughter may have been inconsiderate or selfish or uh, disrespectful in some way and she sucked it up and then she finally couldn't contain it anymore. So we're from the school of thought of more communication is better and we're advocates of family meetings do you know that, yeah. <laughs> that you meet with the family already just sitting down together is showing respect. I respect your opinion. I want to know what's going on in your life. I want to know what your needs are. I want us to have an open line of communication here. And if there are some things that have happened that are current, rather than keeping them hidden, they can come out. And there's often stuff on the kids' side, too, that they yes. may be holding, that they end up acting out. And so it's really of utmost importance to keep the lines of communication as open as possible all around. Yes. Okay. Uh, I was just going to add one caveat to what Linda's saying. There's a chapter in our book about non-reactive listening. That's what I was just going to ask you about. <laughs> so for those who aren't familiar with the term, I mean, it means that you listen with as open a mind as you can. And whether you agree or disagree with what the person is saying, whether you like it or don't, you can be present with them in a way that they feel you're really giving them your full attention. And it's that quality of attentiveness that really makes such a difference with people. When, when we're busy preparing our reaction, our response to them in our mind, they feel it. They feel that they're only getting a certain level of our attention. And so when we can give them that committed listening, rather than preparing to show them the error of their thinking <laughs> when we speak, it's much more likely that there's going to be some more meaningful connection between mm -hmm. the two of us if we can bring that level of attentiveness to them. And the timing is so important. 
-hmm. in the scenario that you depicted with the daughter being inebriated and the mother (laughs) overwhelmed with emotion because she was imagining she was dead by the side of the road. Yes. I've had moments like that. The timing was not good for any non-reactive listening. Just to say, (laughs) I'm so glad you're safe. I was so frightened. Uh, We are going to talk about this first thing in the morning after we've gotten some rest. Yeah, the, you you make an agreement that you're not going to let yet another right. transgression go underground again. You're going to deal with it, but you're going to. It's so important that you're going to deal with it when you both have your sensibilities about you to address it in an important way. Yes, I obviously know exactly what y'all are talking about. <laughs> so let's talk the juxtaposition of non-reactive listening versus being triggered. So that's what you're talking about. Can you explain what that means, triggered? Triggered is when you're so emotionally flooded with feeling that you just can hardly contain yourself. So we're advocates of taking a time out. Parents use this all the time when the kids are really small. If they're a year old, they have a timeout for a minute. And if they're two and if they're three, they have three minutes. But then they lose the timeout. And I think parents need timeout just like kids need timeout. That we need to have an agreement before the conflagration happens that if either one of us feels that we need a timeout, we could just say, I need a little break right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to think about it, but I'm coming right back. Mm-hmm. And come back as soon as you can. And what you do on the break means everything. Because mm-hmm. when you're so triggered and you're just flooded with feeling, you know, you're angry, you're frightened, you're afraid your needs aren't going to get met, you're afraid you're not going to get heard, you know, you're just overwhelmed. You don't want to go on the break and then imagine how you're going to get them when you come back <laughs> and make a bad wrong. You want to really calm yourself down. And this is an extraordinary skill to be teaching our children mm-hmm. by modeling by example that if we either one of us gets so upset that we need a little break, okay, we'll take a break. And we'll go have a meditative pause. We'll do some deep breathing. You know, We'll think about how we love each other and we want to have a success when we re-engage. And then we come back and our neocortex is working not our reptilian brain the reptilian brain only knows fight flight and freeze it's not our best asset when we have our neocortex when we're calm cool and collected there are all kinds of options available and we can remember the things that really work like I love you and I want the best for you. And it really scared me when you came home that late. And I was so afraid that something awful had happened to you. And I just couldn't stand it, you know, if you got injured or hurt. And I am making an effective request right now. I hope you can hear that I want you to think of me when you're out late. At least call me, you know, at least tell me you're all right. But it's really important to me that when we make agreements that we're kept, and if we've got a curfew agreement in place, I want you to honor that. Mm -hmm. I will honor the agreements that I make with you, and I'm sorry that I went wacky on you and that (laughs) so judgmental. I hope you will forgive me. It was because I was so afraid. Mm. Yes, yes. Good repair. Yeah, that's the part of it. Yes, so many good things in that story, too, in terms of I think it's so important for moms, especially to apologize to their kids. I like to tell my moms, like, even if you think it's 99 percent your child's fault and you've got maybe one percent, but own that. And like you just said is, I'm sorry I went wacky. That can just completely disarm them in just a half a second that you are showing them that you have self-awareness of how you are acting. Right. Mm-hmm. And then going back to what you're saying, I completely like the time out thing. So I'll tell my moms, okay, you know, your three-year-old gets three minutes. So how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> so you get 45 minutes. And so you think you... <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't think you had 45 minutes today, but now you get 45 minutes. Yeah. 
<laughs> and you might not need it all. Maybe you just need a few, but you need to take the time that you need to take so that when you come back to engage again, you're really effective. How can someone who's really triggered calm down? Step number one, acknowledge to yourself and possibly the other person, I am triggered. I mean, it sounds so obvious, like why should I even need to say it? Because there's something powerful in the outward acknowledgement and the inward acknowledgement that I'm having this experience. It validates, yeah, I am in a different state of mind right now. And the next thing is to get clear about, okay, I'm triggered. What's my intention? What is it that I want to have happen now out of this state that I'm in right now? Well, (laughs) I want to get untriggered because I can't think straight. I can't hear clearly. I can't interact with you the way I want to because I am possessed by an emotional reaction that is preventing me from experiencing things accurately and clearly. Okay, so I want to get out of that state. All right. And so then there's no generic answer to that question. What do I do? It depends upon the circumstances. It depends upon what's going on within me, what's going on between the two of us. What I might need at that moment when I check in is there's something I really feel is important that you understand that I haven't been able to get through to you. I need you to listen to me because I've been trying to, if you can hear this, I think that that might help me to get untriggered. That's one possible thing I might need. Another thing I might need is I might need a break here. (laughs) I might need a timeout or, you know, I I might need to just get some space between us right now. And like Linda said, take a few breaths and, you know, just de-intensify things for myself. But to check in with myself, what do I need right now to get untriggered? That self-reflective part of it is really important because, like I said, there is no generic answer to that question. When we ask it, we've got to be able to check in with ourselves. What do I need now? What do I need in this unique situation right now? What would be helpful to me to be able to be more present here? I would add, because the cues and tips that Charlie's offering are coming from an introvert who can do a lot of things on his own. Do you know that (laughs) he can meditate and he can self-talk and he can settle himself down? I'm pretty extremely introverted. I've learned- Extroverted. uh, Extroverted. I've learned a lot about (laughs) introversion from him. So I can journal now and I can use meditation and, and breath work and settle myself down. But when my kids were small, I sometimes had to call another mom and talk to her and said, I'm not really loving my kid at this moment. I'm really feeling like I got the wrong kid and I'm the wrong <laughs> mother for this kid. And I just need to let some of this steam off right now. And people used to pick up the phone back then. I have to sometimes go along list on my dialing for dollars list with my <laughs> women friends to find somebody who even picks up the phone nowadays, which is one of the reasons I'm learn to do the introversion method more. And I um, have a repertoire about how I settle myself down if I get emotionally activated. But I think turning to our supports is a good idea. And I know it's embarrassing when we feel out of control and our emotions are raging and we don't feel like our kid is listening to us or even values what we have to offer. And sometimes another mother will say, yeah, I've been there. I know about that. You know, you've got a fabulous daughter and she's going to be, you know, a terrific adult and she's going to be a good mom herself. And you're just having a little rough passage right now and you're going to get through this. So I believe in you. You know, we sometimes need the blessing and some believing eyes that Mm -hmm. this is very temporary. It's a blip on the screen. It's not really a catastrophe after all. And then talking to another parent can sometimes make all the difference in the world. Yeah, no, that's really good. All right. So you have a chapter, Making a Molehill Out of a Mountain. We can do both or either. You know, we can make a huge deal out of something that's really insignificant, or at least somebody might think that it's insignificant. Um, 
And, and so what we'll do is that there is something that, that can be a, a mountain to us. In other words, it, it's a formidable challenge in the moment, something, it's a big deal. And to somebody else, they might see that we're making a big deal out of it. And so we can actually withhold our true sense of concern about a situation, try to quiet it down, try to make it smaller, even though to ourselves it really is important in order to prevent the other person from thinking we're making too big a deal out of something. We might want to avoid their judgment. You know, they might say, hey, you know, knock it off. It's not that important. And we might try to make it less important to us, but it is important. And it's important that we honor the way in which we feel about something. It, it doesn't mean that we're right and they're wrong or they're right and we're wrong. It just means that, hey, you can't argue, you can't invalidate somebody's feeling. If somebody says, I'm tired, they can't be wrong about that. It's not like, no, you're not tired. You shouldn't be tired. Sorry, but I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm bored. I'm upset. I'm happy. Well, those are experiences that just naturally emerge within us uninvited. You know, they just they just show up. And so it's the same thing when we say that this a concern, this is this is important to us. This is what I'm feeling. And then somebody tries to basically give us the message that you shouldn't feel that way. Mm -hmm. It's a disservice to ourselves to buy into that and to try to deny what we're feeling. The consequence, though, to standing up for our truth, no, this is really what is true for me, is that we could provoke or maybe a fear that we might provoke an argument with another person. This isn't so much in terms of adult and, and child, but it can come up in that context, too. To be true to yourself is to be willing to claim the reality of your experience without trying to convince the other person that they need to agree with you, but just to take a stand for that and honor that, even though they may not like what you're saying because it might make them feel guilty or it might make them feel upset or whatever. Mm -hmm. And Charlie's helped me a lot with this. Mm. I have a very active imagination, mm -hmm. you know, and that's wonderful for visioning wonderful things. But also <laughs> my mind can rampage. I call it catastrophizing mind and I can make things way worse than they really are or could be. And he's good with the big, long overview. I call that eagle vision. And I have mouse vision. So I'm so good with details. So if something <laughs> was amiss with the kids, you know, maybe one yes. of the kids was doing something and I would, my catastrophizing mind, oh my God, they're not going to get about living a responsible life. They're going to become a <laughs> delinquent. They're not going to be able to be successful in life. And Charlie would say, you know, she's 12 years old. Do you know, she doesn't have much life experience yet. Let's give her a chance to learn from, you know, the lessons that life is going to give her. And the same with my son, because there, you know, there were some wild, unexpected, you know, kind of shocking things that did that I never would have dared do when I was a kid. It was a very controlled environment. And my kids felt safe enough to risk some things that I never would have done. And I would get really tensed up about it. And Charlie would help me to see the, the overview and get it down to proportion that it, in my mind, it was a huge mountain, but really this is only a molehill. It's not that big a deal. Mm -hmm. And he was usually right about it. <laughs> I love it. So when do arguments become destructive? It's at that point where you get that, here we go again feeling when you're both trying to coerce the other person into taking on a behavior or a feeling or an attitude that coincides with our perspective. When both of you are trying to do that, then you're locked into a very negative, potentially dangerous cycle that's really difficult to detach from until one of you, and it could be either one, is willing to stop resisting the other person and to see that there's more than two possibilities here. We have this zero-sum thinking where we enter into a difference of opinion with only two options. I win and you lose, or you win and I lose. That thinking itself 
can doom an interaction. The good news is that it can be interrupted. It can be broken, that locked in mutual reactivity, and either person can do it. And the way you can do it is to really get vulnerable. And vulnerability, which which literally means to be at risk of being harmed or threatened or injured. That's what vulnerability is. It means disarming yourself of whatever it is that you feel is protecting you from more uh, negative reactivity from the other person. So it could sound like acknowledging what you're feeling rather than and taking the focus off of the other person, what they should be doing or thinking or feeling, and just saying, this is what I'm feeling right now. I'm, I'm feeling really frustrated and, and even scared because uh, every time we go to these places, uh, I feel helpless and I don't know what to do. So taking the focus away from them, putting it on you, getting vulnerable and expressing some of the underlying feelings that are causing you to be defensive. Mm-hmm. And that can, doesn't always turn out this way, but it can make it more likely that the other person will then cool down a little bit when they hear you. They don't feel so, we don't want to make them feel threatened because that's going to just amp up the defensiveness. When we're both defensive, we can't hear each other. You know, in a parent-child interaction, the kids are very sensitive to when we're putting our point of view out that may be different than their point of view. And I think it is really important to be careful that we make the distinction between that attitude or that behavior is not working for me. It doesn't have anything to do with how much I love you. Mm -hmm. I love you. I respect you. I adore you. But that particular behavior I'm not approving of that. Mm -hmm. That does not work for me. And to be careful about where those lines are, because sometimes our kids feel like we don't love them. It's not true. But some of the ways we can come down so harshly, do you know, Mm -hmm. they feel like we're making them really bad and wrong and who they are, the character, you know, the core, the essence of the person is somehow wrong. And so to be careful to make that distinction between the behavior is not something I approve of, or that attitude or that belief is not something that is my belief. But I'm interested to know how you arrived at that. I want to stay in dialogue about it. Maybe I could shift a little bit. I want to understand the essential job that I think that we need to do as parents is to convey our belief to our child, that they have everything within them to make wise choices Mm -hmm. and that they will learn from their mistakes. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be dependent on us to be the authoritarian, to tell them how to live their life because they will rebel. And we know a lot of parents whose children are not on speaking terms with them now. Yes. Yes, they were so authoritarian and they were so bossy and controlling that as soon as the kid left home, didn't have the dependency anymore. They said, I don't have to take that anymore. Do you know? So Mm -hmm. for the parents to learn how to be respectful and manage the differences well when the kids are still under their roof is essential for the long time well-being. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow, we could talk for hours and hours. (laughs) But I was thinking a huge gift to all the moms listening right now, I think, is if you could speak to the parent that you were when your kids were teens, knowing all that you know right now, what advice would you have for you back then? Thank you for the question, because I don't have very many regrets about my life, but I do have just a very small number. One of the things that I regret is that I didn't take more date night and romantic getaways and honeymoons with my husband while I was raising the children. Mm. From my point of view, a rather child-centered family 
And we were busy being at their soccer games and their band concerts and their tennis matches and little league. And, and we would forego date night to, to do all these child centered things and not have as much of a social life. Children's friends were in the house and we had some honeymoons and I do cherish the ones that we had, but I feel that when I came back from a romantic weekend away or a honeymoon, my kids looked so cute to me. Do you know, I was so happy to be a parent, but the exposure during those many years of parenting, I used to call it was, it was sunburn. Do you know, sun is a wonderful thing, but too much exposure that I wish I had the self-esteem to give myself more of what I really needed some time individually, mm-hmm. some time with my women friends, maybe go on trips with them and some time with my beloved lover. And I feel like I would have been sweeter natured and more patient and more generous of spirit. So I appeal to your listening audience, to those moms who are so in service to the children that they're having a child-centered family to the exclusion of their own individual personal needs and the needs of the romantic partnership to make the whole thing work. I completely agree. (laughs) The culture that I grew up in and that my peers have grown up in was one which was not only a parent-centered orientation, but a mom-centered responsibility. Uh, Both Linda and I and most of the people in our age group grew up in families where there were clearly defined roles and responsibilities that the fathers had, and they were mostly two-parent families, which has changed radically over the years, Mm -hmm. and the roles and responsibilities that the fathers had. The mothers and the fathers had distinct responsibilities, and it was in the mother's domain. In my generation, I grew up thinking that, okay, a man's job is basically to be the provider materially, financially, the breadwinner, and my mother didn't work. Although she was very gifted in many ways, she was pretty much focused on the domestic responsibilities. And as a result, she was carrying a weight that was with four kids that was a huge burden. And so, <laughs> and my father had a, only one job, really, basically. He, he didn't have the responsibility for caring for the children. I mean, he was, his job was to provide for the material financial needs of the family. All that's radically changed. And you know, as I look back on my consciousness as, a, as an adult, as a husband, as a father, we're in the generation of transition. You know, those roles, the first part of our lives, those roles were very deeply embedded. And then, you know, in the 60s and 70s, things really started changing. And I came into parenthood still believing that my job was fundamentally to be secondary as a parent and to be primary as a breadwinner. And so as a result, the values that I brought into the family were to focus largely on providing, not child care, not child concern, but in terms of the material and the, and the financial. So I had a, a work addiction for several years in which I was so lopsidedly focused on my work and so neglectful of my responsibilities as a father that things got wildly out of balance. But fortunately, we were able to put the corrections in. But I still have some real sadness and remorse about that, even though I understand I was really doing my best to fulfill what I had accepted as the responsibilities. And now I see that it was a very limited and distorted picture that I had and most of the men in my generation had. And when I see my son's involvement with his kids now and how he is 
He's a champ. He's the father that I wish I could have been. And the good news is that you can mess up as a parent. You can make mistakes. You're going to. I don't care how much you do or how much you know or how much you love your kids even. Okay, it's never too late to influence them by being, I am now the kind of parent that my kids need. And they don't need the parent that (laughs) I wasn't back in those days because they're adult now. I can in some ways make up for the loss that what I wasn't able to give them and see in the way they are parenting now. They're living balanced lives. They're giving to their kids fully in ways that I I never was able to. And they're honoring their chosen areas of achievement in their own personal lives, too. There's a tremendous sense of fulfillment there Mm. for me Mm. that, you know, I I didn't. (laughs) I guess (laughs) I guess I didn't totally screw them up because, (laughs) because look, they're doing they're really doing well now. So, yeah, it's mixed feelings uh, about that. But I I think I have kind of forgiven Mm -hmm. myself in the recognition of the context that we've been living in. Yeah. Yeah. And for the the way for the way our our culture has evolved in terms of involving fathers. Yes. 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 That's wonderful. Parents who are listening want to learn more about you or find your book, what can they do and where can they go? If they can remember either Linda Bloom, Charlie Bloom, or Bloomwork, it'll take them to their website. And we got all kind of free stuff on our website. There are over 600 blogs on psychology today. There are over 100 YouTube videos. And we have some free eBooks. And so when people go to our website, they can see where we're teaching a workshop. There are links to buy the new book and our previous four books, which people seem to find really helpful also. And when we're parenting kids, don't we need all the inspiration that we can get? <laughs> yes. And so these books, the free ebooks, And the blogs and the videos on YouTube and our newest book are all to support couples to have a splendid relationship, not just an okay relationship, a great relationship so that they can be the gift of a model of a working partnership, which is one of the wonderful things that we give our kids to give them the best possible start in life. Thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you for having us and for the wonderful questions. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting us on. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, and that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.